Welcome to the Imperial Healthcare Business Podcast. My name is Ivy Adedugwe and I'm your host for today. Today we'll be discussing biotechnology and I've got a wonderful guest for you today. His name is John F. Crowley and he's the CEO of Amicus Therapeutics, which is a global patient-dedicated biotechnology company focused on discovering, developing and delivering high-quality medicines for people living with rare metabolic diseases. John's involvement with biotechnology stems from the diagnosis of two of his children with Pompeii disease, a severe and often fatal neuromuscular disorder. In his drive to find a cure for them, he left his position at Bristol MyScribe and became an entrepreneur as the co-founder, president and CEO of Novozyme Pharmaceuticals, which was a biotech startup conducting research on new experimental treatment for Pompeii disease. He credits this for ultimately saving his children's lives. He's also a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy Reserve, and he was assigned to the United States Special Operations Command, and he's a veteran with service in Afghanistan. He graduated with a BS in Foreign Service from Georgetown University, and he earned a JD from the University of Notre Dame Law School and an MBA from the Harvard Business School. He's also the former national chairman of Make-A-Wish Foundation of America and is the founding member of the Global Genes Project, John is currently a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. Very welcome, Mr. Crowley, to the Imperial Business Podcast. Um, so just tell us a little bit about your career journey so far and how you ended up in the uh, sort of genetic, rare genetic world space. Yeah, thank you, Ivy, for having me. I think um, I did not grow up intending to be a biotechnology CEO and entrepreneur. Uh, actually intended to be a police officer when I was young. My my dad was a police officer growing up, and, and uh, that was kind of what I had hoped to be. And as I got a little bit older, I actually focused on the military and spent some time in the Navy and did go to law school and business school and um, began working uh, after a little stint practicing law. Spent some time at Bristol-Myers Squibb and the marketing and strategy departments and then uh, life intervened in my career plans when we found out that our two youngest children had a rare form of muscular dystrophy known as Pompe disease and that launched us into the world of medicine and rare diseases uh, you know even at Bristol Myers we were working on larger indications uh, and and that had nothing to do frankly with rare genetic diseases particularly in children um, but I think, you know, going through all of that, we really kind of focused on uh, science, medicine, patients, and for us, it was a race against time as much as it was a race against nature. And we really wanted ultimately to just be involved. I wanted to be involved every day. And I think more than anything, I wanted to make sure we never had any regrets, that we didn't try every, any, everything, I guess. <laughs> and didn't learn everything we could, meet everyone we could, and try to advance science. And that's really what launched us into starting a biotechnology company. Uh, the first one uh, launched in early 2000 that we called Novozyme Pharmaceuticals, and that um, was my first venture into biotechnology. Um, and it's been quite a journey in the 21 plus years since in, in biotech from Novozyme to Genzyme, the company we sold it to, uh, and then uh, starting the company I run today, Amicus Therapeutics, in 2005, a handful of us. And now we have uh, at Amicus over 500 employees around the world. We have a presence in more than two dozen countries. And in fact, our international headquarters are based uh, just outside London in Marlow. 
So, and I do miss getting to Marlowe in the last year and a half or so. Yeah, no, I'm, and that's truly amazing. So when you look back on the last sort of 23 to 25 years you've been working in this space, what continues to drive you to work in this area? I Well, first of all, when you frame it that way, 23 to 25 years, uh, it makes, makes me feel older than, than, than <laughs> perhaps I am. I, um, you know, when, when we got into biotech, it was for a very personal reason. It was to, you know, help save our two children, Patrick and Megan, and a small number of children we had come to know in the early part of that journey. I, you know, I think today for us, the, the reasons are still the same. They're just much more broad than they ever were. It's, you know, trying to help many more people than just our two children. Uh, and you look at where we are today at Amicus, we have marketed product in Febre disease, a soon to be marketed, we hope, a second generation product in Pompe disease. And we are developing the largest portfolio of rare disease gene therapies in the industry, uh, up to about 50 rare diseases, more than a dozen we have very active programs on today. So, you know, rare diseases are, are just that by their nature. You're hoping to help small subsets of people living with the disease, but taken together, they're not so rare at all. And, you know, so for us, it's that intense patient focus, mission focus. And I think that's an important lesson for me over the last, uh, I guess, as you framed it, nearly quarter of a century, that whatever you do, whatever organization you're a part of, it, it has to have that purpose-driven mission, the sense of why are we doing, what are we doing? And for us, it's, it's very clear and, and a very intense focus, of course, in, in rare fatal diseases. But any organization, you know, to define your purpose, how are you helping people? How are you helping one another? What are you building? Uh, you know, you think about businesses and building businesses. You know, economic success builds families, families build mm -hmm. communities. And, um, you know, all of that, I think, is, is really important in this kind of virtuous circle of, of, uh, of development and, and building sustainable organizations. And, and that's kind of what gives us our purpose every day. Yeah. And you, you just articulated that so beautifully in terms of, you know, the macroscopic vision for the company. Um, so I'd ask you, what were the greatest lessons you've learned so far in your career that's that prepared you for the life um, as a CEO of, of a biotech company? I think in biotech in particular, you know, you have to think in, in almost every industry that, you know, the technologies take time, but, you know, with, with effort, they, they oftentimes work. The question is, how well do they work? And, you know, then you've got to enter them into the business world and competition and pricing and marketing and market share and all that. Biotech is different in that almost every technology we try doesn't work. But to get that answer oftentimes takes years and millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And then we have to worry about getting it past, you know, regulators around the world, different regulators. And then we have to make sure that it fits a patient's needs and is priced and access and, and all of that. So, you know, as you, as you kind of think about lessons learned, I think for me in biotech, um, persistence, um, resilience and persistence are incredibly important concepts. I, um, you, you know, I, I have in, in my office at home a picture of Dr. Jonas Salk, 
who invented the polio vaccine. And I uh, it was given it given to me as a gift years ago. And he researched somebody like a Dr. Salk, where you realize, despite his enormous success and what he did to change the world, how many how many times he failed <clears throat> in what he was doing. His first experiments were abject failures. And I remember reading a, an interview with Dr. Salk years ago after his success in uh, a magazine ironically titled Wisdom. And he uh, he said that, you know, after one of those major failures, he went, sat on a park bench, thought about how he would share that failure with his family, his colleagues, his investors, his academic superiors. And then he said he looked out at the playground and, and he saw children playing. And it dawned on him in that moment, he said that without a polio vaccine, some of them would contract polio. Some of them may even die or be confined to an iron lung in their life. And he said he realized at that point the enormity of the importance of his work and that he went back to it with what he said was a renewed vigor. Um, it's, uh, and that's, I think, an important lesson in, in any, any uh, undertaking in life, but certainly in business, in entrepreneurship, and particularly in our industry, that intense focus on being persistent, resilient. And again, for us, I think that the most important lesson is just that purpose to what we do, that sense of it's bigger than you. Um, and that that kind of carries us through the tough times as well. Yeah, yeah. that's wonderful. Um, how do you balance being a visionary health, health tech leader with the bottom lines of business KPIs and and sort of financial metrics? You know, it's interesting. I, I've, that was a real issue when I started our first company. I, I wouldn't, you know, the, the internet wasn't quite so robust in 2000. So it wasn't so easy to Google somebody and get their background before a meeting. And so I'd come in with PowerPoint slides and talk about our business technology in the market and about at slide 30, I had a, a graphic that shows all the different patient organizations and rare diseases. And I pointed out one, a Pompeii Children's Foundation that our family had started. And that's when I introduced the concept that I was also a dad of two children with a rare disease. And, you know, some investors didn't like that idea from the start. They worried about, you know, being too biased, being too emotional, but whatever the, the perceived conflict could be. But what I would tell everybody is that we have perfectly aligned interests, and that's to get the best medicine to as many people as quickly as possible. And that means if something isn't working, you know, oftentimes in biotech, people will kind of kick the can down the road and kind of polish up data and pretend everything is okay. And generally pretty savvy and experienced people and investors sort through that pretty quickly. Um, but, uh, you know, when you think about kind of moving things forward and um, realize that in, in, in biotech and in drug development, the hardest thing sometimes is knowing when to stop. And I would use that as an example that you as investors have no interest in my pursuing a technology. While we've got to be persistent, at some point things just don't work and you've got to pivot and figure out what other angle, what other approach, what other technology. Uh, and I would share with them, I said, look, you don't want that as an investor to waste time and capital. And as somebody building a company and as a dad of kids with this rare disease, I can't waste time or money either. And so I'd use that example. And you've got to realize too that you, you need to build a sustainable business. 
And um, these businesses take enormous amounts of capital and time. Uh, so there, there is an element of, of patience that has to come with this. And sometimes I'm not a particularly patient person, but I, I think when we think about aligning our interest with investors, if we're successful, they're going to be perfectly aligned. And I always describe it as a dual mission, um, a dual mission for patients and shareholders. Yeah, and I think you just answered my next question, which is going to be on how you convince investors um, who are looking for sort of short term return on, of investments to, you know, possibly invest into your, you know, a company like yours. How would you say COVID has changed um, sort of how your company operates? It's, you know, the core is still the same. And, and we were fortunate, Ivy, in that we, um, you know, we started Amicus in 2005. We've infused it with an incredibly strong culture so that when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, we were among the first companies to go remote. We realized that you know, we just talked about the importance of our key stakeholders of patients and shareholders. There are a number of other key stakeholders, including our employees. And I told them point blank on it. We didn't even have all of our videos set up. It was a most awkward thing I've probably done is a conference call with 500 plus people around the world sitting in the guest room of my daughter's apartment in North Carolina, where I just driven through the night to pack her up, take her back to New Jersey for a, a time so she'd be safe. Um, and telling folks that, uh, yes, we still continue to focus on patients, shareholders, other stakeholders, but for a time, we need to focus on one another. We have to ensure the protection of our workforce and their families. Because if we don't have that, all the other missions will go away. And and I think people appreciated that. One of the first things we did was we put a program in place called Amicus Cares. And it was um, logistic support. It was support with PPE gear if people needed that. It was child support uh, where people needed it. Uh, but we also gave everybody a thousand US dollars, um, each employee. and. We did it for two reasons, uh, non-executives got the $1,000. We said, look, there's going to be expenses to anticipate today in during COVID in what we thought would be the weeks or month or two ahead. Um, but we also did it to show them that the company was financially strong, that we could afford to do this, because obviously the economic part of the world was unraveling. And I also then got my senior team together. And, you know, I had served for many years as an officer in the U.S. Navy Reserve and had deployed to combat zones and had been part of the Special Operations Command. We have a very high pace of operations and a very high operational tempo. And in many respects, in the, in the global war on terrorism, we, we, um, we worked virtually and by video around the world. And so we, I took some of the lessons from that. And I shared with our team, I said, you know, this is an incredibly uncertain time. Uncertainty breeds anxiety. We need to be highly visible. I said, so everyone here every day, I said, I want every meeting by video. And we got all of the best video connections up and going within 48 hours. I said, no more telephone calls. Everything has to be by video. Uh, and I said, I am going to be in person in front of every one of our 500 plus employees within the next 30 days. And so I did that in small groups, talk to every single employee, many of whom I'd never seen before in my life. Um, so to be able to see them, but for them to hear from me, from my senior team, to see each other 
and to have some sense that, you know what, we can get through this. Uh, but it was enormously challenging. You know, we had to focus on the global distribution of our medicines into a, a total of about 40 different countries where we were either selling medicines to people that were critically important or we were conducting clinical studies. And so, you know, I think through all of that, having that culture of, of being purpose-driven, of being focused on the mission for patients, focused on each other, focused on continuing to build a sustainable business, made an enormous difference and I, I think helped make last year actually very successful for us. Yeah, and, you know, it sounds like you've got amazing pillars in your in the business. Um, talking about sort of finances, uh, you know, I was looking on uh, Yahoo Finance, looking at the market cap for the company. And, you know, you have done remarkably well, you know, even as a biotech um, company. Oh, I wish you were a hedge fund manager. I, just, I don't know if you compliments on sure. No, I mean, I, I, I truly mean that because I think a lot of um, biotech companies struggle to get investors because, the investors are either looking for short-term, you know, returns. They're not in for the long game. And your focus on rare diseases means that they have to be in it for the long game. So, you know, yeah, it, it, you've done amazing work, <laughs> I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's very kind. You know, we've grown the company to about a $3 billion market cap yeah. here. And it's not been a straight line to get from our, you know, a dollar, <laughs> a dollar to $3 billion. Um, but we continue to have a really big vision. We think, you know, we're just starting in many respects, even though we've been doing this for 16 and a half years. Uh, and now having marketed products, having revenue, you know, we'll generate over $300 billion in global revenue this year. And we're on track, you know, we, we think for a billion dollars in revenue in the next couple of years, that becomes a pretty meaningful company. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, I think we can all be proud of. And much of that cash flow is going to go back into research and development to improve upon the medicines we have and to invent entirely new technologies. And that's kind of the self-sustaining cycle of, of what we need to do, the life cycle of, of medicines. Yeah, no, and, and that's amazing. Your typical patients, how do they fund the treatment? Is it via sort of hospital foundations or insurance or sort of government initiatives? It's, yeah, this, so this is a really important point. Um, it's part of the core of, of who we are. When we started our company in 2005, I wanted a value statement. I'd read some great ones. I was always uh, in awe of the Johnson & Johnson credo and, and other statements of corporate values. Every company has them. I wanted something pretty different. So I wrote the first two words. I wrote, we believe, and then I put a team of about a dozen non-executives together and I gave them the charge to fill in the rest. It took them six months. We had a lot of back and forth. We ended up with two dozen bullet points. One, and I encourage folks to go on our website uh, for Amicus Therapeutics and look at that value statement. It's the same one today. And one of those bullet points said that our medicines must be fairly priced and broadly accessible. And that was many, many years, more than a decade before we ever had an approved medicine and any revenue or any drug to price. But it was an important tenet of, of who we wanted to become that to make medicines and to not have them broadly available to me is meaningless and, and in an incomplete mission. 
and we we live that we really do live that um, and i'm very proud today that for our approved medicine in febre disease not a single person in the world has ever been denied access because of an inability to pay so in in many parts of the world in the united states it's 100 percent covered by insurance um, in you know in europe and other areas where the the governments will typically pay uh, we will negotiate you know we want fair prices we've invested an enormous amount we need to build a business so these are not inexpensive medicines um, but we make sure that they're delivering value to the healthcare system so in europe for instance we priced it at parity with existing therapies we didn't price it at a premium even though it was a new medicine a new technology but because it was a pill, not an infused product requiring a hospital visit or a needle every other week, we saved the system tens of thousands of dollars per patient per year. In the United States, we actually priced it uh, where prices are generally higher. We priced it a little below the existing standard of care, saving the system money plus the infusion costs. In the United States, uh, where typically many companies take price increases, large price increases every year, we made a promise we would never raise the price of that medicine above the consumer price index in the United States. So it'll rise with inflation and that's all. Consumer inflation, not even medical inflation. But even then around the world, we have a, a, a program called Rare Bridges where we provide the medicine in parts of the developing world in particular we'll, where they'll never be able to afford it. And so patients get access for free. Um, we also have a program called Access Forever. So many, in fact, many of our early clinical trial patients came from countries where uh, you know they're, they're, they're still developing parts of Latin America, for instance. And we made a promise to those patients if they come in into our clinical studies, they will remain on our drug forever. We'll not, we're not gonna take them off when the study ends, we'll keep them on forever. And we have some patients now 15 plus years on our medicine provided at our cost. Um, so, you know, expanded access, compassionate use programs, it, it, it's, it's a balance, but and you need a really bespoke approach, uh, literally country by country. Um, and in some cases, even within countries, hospital system by hospital system or geography, canton, state by state, you have to figure out how are we gonna make sure that patients have access. So a lot of ways in which we've reduced to practice those principles, but it's an incredibly important principle for, for us, for me. Uh, and it's something we're committed to as we get into areas like gene therapy and maybe even someday gene editing, making sure that everybody around the world, this just can't be accessed in the developed world. It has to be more broad than that. Yeah, and honestly, that is truly phenomenal. Um, that, that That's every clinical researcher's dream, that you will make sure that their work gets to the right people um, eventually. Um, so your company's focus is on building a patient-centric sort of ecosystem of research and clinical trials. How have you been able to build trust so easily with families um, that they're willing to get involved in the trials? It's not been easy. And, you know, I think you want to be transparent. You want to be able to listen. I, you know, so yes, we, we chose the name Amicus, the Latin word for friend. We wanted to be the most patient-focused, patient-friendly company in all of biotechnology. But we couldn't just say that. Again, we had to live it. So a couple things we've done there. Um, one, we have a, uh, a chief patient officer, chief patient advocate, C-suite executive who reports directly to me, who represents the interests of patients. 
and serves as the ombudsman for patient interests, um, helps us develop our business strategies. Uh, Jane Gershkowitz is our long-serving chief patient advocate. Jane sits on my executive committee, comes to all of our board of directors meetings. We de describe Jane and her team, although we all try to live it, we describe Jane and her team as the conscience of the company. And so for people to see that they have a real true patient interest, not just patient focus is important. We bring patients into the company to speak. We've done this, a lot of companies do it now. I think we were the first or among the first to do this many years ago to bring in on a very regular basis, people living with disease to speak to the company. Um, oftentimes in diseases that we work in research, sometimes in diseases we don't, but that are important for us to hear and learn about. We also have, you know, every biotech company has a scientific advisory board and we have one. And they have medical advisory boards for their different diseases they research and we have those too. But we also have patient advisory boards, PABs, for every disease that we work in. And we bring these patients, or in the case of pediatric diseases, the, the parents oftentimes, they're under confidentiality. We, we don't pay them, but um, they come to the company, we'll pay their, pay their travel, but come to the company once or twice a year, or now virtually, and we share with them everything that we're doing, our data, our regulatory strategies. Um, they make our programs better, much better, by understanding the patient perspective. But also, you know, when things take longer, when things, I don't know, I guess when things go sideways, um, it is a great back and forth relationship, and, and that found, the foundation of it is built on trust. And, and a mutual interest and a mutual level of respect. And it, it is hard. I mean, the, the, as I had said earlier, the toughest thing in drug development is knowing when to stop a program. That's usually after you've failed. And, and we had a rare disease that we had worked in for a number of years called epidermolysis bullosa. Sounds like a, a Harry Potter, uh, you know, <laughs> thing. But yeah. it, it's, it's not it's a horrible a, disease. Yeah, EB for sure, yes. And, yeah. It's a ter terrible, terrible genetic skin disease in children. Uh, many of them live as if they had third degree burns their whole life. And we invested an awful lot of time and resources into a clinical development program for a medicine and it failed. And, and the company was fine. It's, you know, it was one of several programs. I was on, you know, morning business shows on television that morning describing what we had, what failed, but reminding people of everything else we have at Amicus. In fact, the stock, I think, went up that day. But the company was really upset. We had a company-wide meeting. And, you know, people were just in tears, not because Amicus was fine, but because the program had failed. And, you know, they felt in many ways they had failed the patients. And we hadn't. We had done everything right. And, again, it's just a really hard business. Um, but, you know, we committed to, after that, we, we took the lessons of that. We met with other companies who were developing EB medicines, one of which changed its clinical protocols and statistical analyses plans, um, and actually a couple of years later was successful in getting a drug uh, through clinical trials. So, you know, even where you fail, you want to be able to, you know, find ways to learn, to move on, but to also continue to contribute. And so while we don't research um, any medicines today in, in that rare disease, EB, it's still part of the fabric of, of Amicus, still part of our history, and, and importantly, it's still part of our culture. Yeah, and, and again, another phenomenal uh, insight into 
you know, how you build from, you know, what people call failures, but just lessons really to build for better future. What are your predictions of the next sort of urgent disease to crack? Because you mentioned you're working on Febreze disease, you worked on Pompe's disease in the past. What's sort of the next urgent one that needs sort of... Yes, we're, uh, again, we're working on a lot of gene therapies, including for Febreze and Pompe, um, but other rare diseases. We work in a family of diseases, for instance, now called Batten disease. Um, They are a family of about 14 rare brain diseases, fatal brain diseases in children. And, you know, these are diseases where kids are born seemingly healthy. And then they will, you know, by age two, three, four, you know, they're they're not walking quite right or speaking a little slowly. And within a couple of years, these kids go from seemingly perfectly healthy to being in wheelchairs, to being blind, to not being able to speak, to not be able to think or eat and dying by age eight, 10, 14. Just devastating diseases, really hard ones too biologically to figure out, but we're committed to it. We have a couple of really promising programs for a number of those Batten disease programs, uh, two of which have shown early, very promising results in children already, where it looks like if you deliver this one-time treatment gene therapy early in the progression of the disease, you can slow or stop the progression. Um, So we're really excited about moving those programs forward. If you could treat a disease like that, uh, and fundamentally change the course of a disease for something as awful as Batten. Not only will you help children living with that disease, but it really opens the aperture to to think about how can we treat other more prevalent brain diseases, whether they're rare genetic diseases like a, an Angelman or CDKL5 deficiency or Rett disease, you know, more prevalent ones, all the way to thinking about un- unraveling the secrets of the brain to think about how might we approach diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Um, and that's actually one of the, the important parts of studying human genetic diseases, not just helping the people um, who have those diseases today, but to really understanding biology and helping us unravel the secrets of much more prevalent diseases. And ultimately, you know, ultimately all of human health is gonna be wrapped into genetic medicine. We're gonna in a couple of years, every one of us, page one of your medical record is going to be your full human genome, your DNA sequence. And yeah. uh, knowledge is power and controlling your health and outcomes, uh, I think is going to help us significantly extend and enhance human life. Yeah, that's amazing. Again, um, and you just touched on diseases that are very close to my heart because I work in, with neurology and neurosurgical patients. So I'm very excited about the prospect of that. Um, so your company recently moved to a new location in Philadelphia um, called the Cradle of Cures. Tell us about the strategy behind that move. Yeah, you know, I mean, when we first began research, it was in small molecules with, uh, with medicinal chemists developing what became our precision medicine in febrile disease. Um, from there, we developed an expertise in, in biologics glycobiology, the protein of carbohydrates in particular, is we made a next-generation enzyme replacement therapy in Pompe disease. We, uh, we recommitted ourselves to bench core R&D about three and a half years ago, um, and we realized that we wanted to be in gene therapy and that we could combine our expertise in rare disease drug development with our scientific expertise in protein engineering 
combining that with the world's best expertise in gene therapies, particularly at the University of Pennsylvania in the United States. And so we set about to build again our research capabilities, and we decided that Philadelphia would be a terrific place to do that. Um, wonderful universities, obviously anchored with the University of Pennsylvania, um, but also Drexel and, and other universities, a growing ecosystem of biotech companies. It was close to our business operations uh, in New Jersey, about an hour away. It was more affordable than Boston, and we wanted to be kind of the big fish in the medium and growing pond. And so that's where we settled in, and we just were blessed to have now just a beautiful state-of-the-art 50,000 square foot uh, biotechnology research center. It's our global research center and our gene therapy center of excellence. We have about 100 employees there, more than 60 of whom are bench level scientists. Um, so, you know, we're, I think we've built among the best capabilities in core science in gene therapy of any company in the world. And that's something I'm proud of. And, you know, the Philadelphia always had the moniker of cradle of the cradle of liberty. And so we kind of borrowed from that and, uh, and made it the cradle of cures. Yeah, and I love that because that aligns with your mission statements as a company. Um, so just we're going to move to sort of more personal thing now. Uh, so you've built a legacy with the work you're doing, you know, with the gene therapy, with the biotechnology side of things. So much so that Hollywood made a movie out of, you know, the story of yourself and your family. How did it feel watching that movie? And are you looking forward to a sequel? <laughs> <laughs> no more, no more movies. I, you know, the uh, as as we you know developed that medicine in the first company in Novozyme, and we got it to our children. We, um, you know, that started to get some attention, and there was a front page Wall Street Journal story by Gita Anand, who is the uh, biotech reporter at the Journal. Then, uh, and you know that got a lot of attention. A lot of people read that story including Harrison Ford. And I look, my, my dad was a police officer, right? Growing up, I, I didn't go to a lot of Hollywood cocktail parties as a kid, um, but he and some producers reached out and uh, <clears throat> they said that they'd like to talk to us. And I think this could, could make for a, a compelling film. Gita at that point was approached to write a book, which she eventually did write a book called The Cure. Uh, and it took us a, a while. I, Gita, we knew and trusted, and so we agreed that she could write a book and we'd fully cooperate. It took her about two years to research and write the book. It took me a while to warm up to, and, and I will tell you, Harrison is um, an incredibly um, smart, capable, but also a wonderfully kind person. And so that went a long way, but it's different. You know, you sign away your right, you know, your life rights and we ended up getting the studio to agree to certain things they couldn't portray in the film. Um, so any you know stupid things they could make up that never happened. Um, but we really trusted the producers, Michael Schomburg, Stacey Schur, and and Harrison Ford to to tell the story of um, of our family that you know the journey in life, the journey as a family, journey into the world of medicines, to share with the world and in a Hollywood way, you know what it takes to start a biotech company and what it takes to make medicines. And in that regard, the, the movie was incredibly successful. It was more than a decade now that since it came out in 2010. And uh, I, you know, we still hear from people today, newly families with newly diagnosed children often who have seen the film and who reach out for thoughts, ideas. Um, 
you know, I guess some some level of inspiration, perhaps. Um, so so it was a wonderful experience for our family. And, uh, you know, my daughter always says, you know, the only problem is that it, it, it contains maybe one of the greatest factual errors in the history of Hollywood. And, and she says that's how they got an actor who's six foot five, Brendan Fraser, to play me, uh, all of about five foot six. So... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think he, he, he played you so beautifully. The passion came true on the yeah. screens when I watched the movie. And you've also written a book called Chasing Miracles. Um, and I read some snippets from the book and it just sounds amazing just to read your journey, you know, your background. You talked a lot about your father at the beginning um, yeah. and growing up in a big family. Um, so it's it's really phenomenal just to hear of the journey you've made, not just on a personal level, and, you know, I know that Megan is doing quite well at the moment. If you don't mind, just mention a little bit about that for us to say how Megan and. Yeah, of course, that, you know, that's the best news. The journey continues. And and I guess that's one of life lessons too, IB, that, you know, this is all about kind of creating more time, more memories and just living life. So Megan ended up going to the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, one of my alma maters and, and a wonderful institution. And, and Megan just thrived here, despite some challenges like most freshmen getting going. Uh, she really found her home here. And uh, Megan graduated with a double major in uh, back in 2019 and went to graduate school. And Megan went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and earned a master's degree in social work. So. Megan just graduated back in May and uh, just uh, earlier in September this year began working. Megan has a job as a social worker, a member of the social work team at the Princeton Middle School in, in New Jersey, which is actually great too. You, you know, you talk about life coming full circle. It's the same social work team who supported her 10, 12 years ago. Wow, and that's amazing. I can I can hear the pride in your yeah. daughter just as you talked about her there. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, um, and our Patrick is uh, is thriving as well. I mean, you know, they're both still in wheelchairs and requiring nursing care and um, on ventilators, but you know, living life to the fullest in their own way. And and Patrick, um, who's always been a quieter soul than than Megan, Patrick works. He goes four days a week uh, and works in a flower shop. Goes with his nurse and. He derives meaning from that, and uh, which is great. So you, I think we all find as parents that kids ultimately find their way. Yeah, and, and that's that's amazing. And one final question, um, which is, what advice would you have for any non-medical person who wants to run a biotech company in the future? Yeah, look, you don't have to be a physician or a scientist to lead a biotech company. You do need to learn your science, your technology, as well as any scientist, so you can describe it. You, you need to do that. Um, but I, I think, you know, it becomes a balance. Ultimately, it's about it's about leadership and call to leadership and being able, you know, I've always said that my job is to set the vision, to help the team develop the strategies. And remember, strategy is choice. Strategy is just about choice. What are the right choices? What's the framework that you're going to use to make these choices? And then it's about communicating. Um, you communicate, you communicate the, the mission, the vision, the strategy, you communicate success, you communicate failures, you celebrate, you mourn sometimes. And ultimately, too, I think my job is about allocating resources. 
constantly visiting, are we on track for the programs? If not, why? And should we continue down that path? And if so, let's reallocate resources or reset priorities. And that's what any business leader or any certainly any CEO's job is really all about. Thank you so much for all that you shared with yeah. us. Um, and to our listeners, go watch the movie, go uh, read the book. Um, it's all very amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks so much. Have a great day.